ਜੀ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਸੋ ਬਿਫੋਰ ਵੀ ਜੰਪ ਸਟ੍ਰੇਟ ਇਨਟੂ ਵਾਟ ਇਟ ਇਜ਼ ਵੀ ਆਰ ਡਿਸਕਸਿੰਗ ਟੁਡੇ ਦ ਡੈਥ ਆਫ ਡਿਗਨਿਟੀ ਹਾਊ ਸੋਸਾਇਟੀ ਇਜ਼ ਕਿਲਿੰਗ ਇਟਸੈਲਫ ਐਂਡ ਆਲਸੋ ਅਸ ਵੀ ਹੈਵ ਜਸਟ ਸਟਾਰਟਡ ਥਿਸ ਨਿਊ ਇਨੀਸ਼ੀਏਟਿਵ ਵਿਚ ਇਜ਼ ਬੇਸਿਕਲੀ ਵੀ ਵਿਲ ਰਿਲੀਸ ਅ ਵੀਕਲੀ ਰਿਫਲੈਕਸ਼ਨ ਵਾਂਸ ਏਵਰੀ ਵੀਕ so if you would have seen it on twitter or facebook last night like uh, the one we did last night was a society which disallows judgment on the grounds that hurts emotions is unable to comprehend that even helping a fellow human being necessitates judging them to make themselves reliant and truly free such a disoriented society does a slow decadent and meaningless death so something like that which we can take away from our podcast or our substack newsletter which if you haven't subscribed to you should these things we will put in the simplified form and then we'll just release it on twitter and facebook or any other outlet we can find like discord so on there please let us know what your thoughts are and what we can do to improve our thinking as well and i suppose that why we are doing this now all of a sudden is because you know there are many sorts of people in the world some are busy some want to read some want to see some want to hear well why not cater to everyone and essentially this is really the gist of what we will be discussing in our week to week episodes so if you want to hear a prolonged discussion with you know all the profound elements explored just you know listen to what we are doing now otherwise if you just want a short summary then why not look at a weekly reflection or our newsletter what do you say sounds good yep sounds good so before we begin uh I have been reading that book which uh, Dr. Tillo recommended Dr. Blavant Singh Tillo by E.H. Carr what is history and it links in what what we are discussing today regarding you know society so societal apathy and how it affects us as Sikhs and you know as individuals particularly now there's a very uh, precise but also controversial observation which uh, Carr made when he was actually giving those lectures which consist what is history Now, obviously we have the western lens you know uh, you can say critics who are in the habit of criticizing anything which is western but surprisingly enough they live in the west themselves so go figure like i said before they haven't been able to provide any alternative to you know western historiography so for the time being we just have to stick with what we have and what makes sense so you know let me paraphrase what you know car proposed and it is this a historian true to his calling will never evade passing judgment on the tyrant society for society is the primary medium through which power is captured vice cultivated and the mass is crushed the tyrant is an equal byproduct of his society as much as the liberator so that's just me paraphrasing what he's saying now obviously i know and please don't be offended you have heard of adolf hitler right Yeah, the failed painter from Austria. Hmm. Failed painter from Austria. We have heard of Joseph McCarthy, we have heard of Stalin. You know, we have heard of a lot of tyrants or individuals who abuse their powers, narcissists, psychopaths, sociopaths, call them whatever you will. But you know what Karl noticed because he was writing right at the end of World War II is that German society deflects the criticism reserved for society. by misdirecting all vilification and criticism attempts at hitler so what he's actually saying is that you know if you were to ask germans why they actually spotted hitler they will come up with a lot of uh, you can say explanations but all of them consist of pointing the finger at one single man right mhm now I suppose here is another question if you ask uh, Americans about you know the McCarthy era like how you know quite a lot of uh, innocent individuals were accused of being uh, marxists and communists and they had their careers and their lives destroyed you come to that as well Americans will point the finger right at the by if I remember correctly was it the house of un-american activities or the committee for un-american activities uh one of those things yeah yep so they will just you know point the finger at the individuals uh, particularly uh Joseph McCarthy Joseph Raymond McCarthy and funnily enough you know 
they even coined a term for it in 1950, McCarthyism, you know, which was soon applied to similar, you know, anti-communist activities. But, you know, this begs the question, why was someone like McCarthy even allowed to get to such a position of power where he ruined the lives of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands? That's a question of what we're going to discuss today. And, uh, okay, that's a very, let's say, an example that people can connect with because this thing was out in the open. There was no less than, a, let's say, a witch hunt or a lynching. Yep. If you, were accused, if you were accused of being, let's say, a communist or a communist sympathizer, you were guilty until proven innocent? Yes. So an acquisition was equal to conviction. Pretty much. The court of uh, public opinion was against you from the very start. Once you were accused, you were dead. Pretty much. And then you were, you know, you had nobody to back you up. Everybody would just distance themselves from you. And then, of course, you had not any means to left to defend yourself to begin with. Hmm. See, what Carr gets it down here, and this is the most important deduction, or you can say calculation, whatever you want to call it, this is what he actually brings out to the fore. See, the historian is disallowed from passing any moral judgment on the individual. So let me give you a precise example down here. Have you read the book, 12 Years a Slave? I uh, haven't, now Yet. Yet. Okay, so they made a movie about it as well, but I've actually read the book. I didn't I never watched the movie. So Twelve Years a Slave is about, you know, Solomon Northup, a freeder, freaking American, who has actually promised a fortnightly job. But when he arrives in Washington, DC, he's actually abducted and sold into slavery and then begins his twelve years of misery. Anyhow, kudos to him, he comes out very strong. You know, what's intriguing is that we cannot judge individual slave owners. You know, if you were to say, I want to pass judgment on an individual, you know, a moral judgment, and you're a historian, well, there are some good slave owners, there are bad slave owners. If you were to pass a judgment on the individual, an individual who is of no consequence, but even if they are of any consequence, you pass a judgment on one slave owner, by default, you're actually establishing a, templa a template or a caricature or a meme, or, you know, basically you're creating a psychological picture which will then be used to judge other slave owners. So if you were to say that this slave owner is bad, the same yardstick psychologically will be applied to another slave owner who might be good. Do you understand what I mean? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we were to say, based on uh, Norfolk's experiences, that slave owner A treated him nicely, well, the psychological picture becomes that, you know, Slave owner B might be nice or, you know, slave owner C might be bad, but maybe, you know, Solomon Norfolk is at fault himself for pissing them off, you know. On the other hand, a historian is allowed to pass judgment. And here's the controversial part. On the institutions which this individual subscribes to or which this individual has created, so, you know, for example, if we have a historian down here who's saying that, you know, we can't judge, although obviously, like I pointed out, you can't judge individual slave owners because one might be good, another might be bad. You can't tar everyone with the same brush because, you know, as a historian, you want to get to the truth of every specific matter rather than make, you know, vague general deductions. Well, you know, you can't judge the individual. You can't judge the whole through the individual, but you can pass a moral judgment on the institution so we might say that, you know, slave owner B is good, but slave owner D is bad. But overall, slavery as an institute is evil. You see what I mean? Well, if slavery as an institution is evil, then everybody who is participating in it becomes bad by default. Bad by default. And that ultimately leads to another conclusion, because if we leave that end untied, what ultimately happens is we're still ignoring the fact that, you know, slave owners were good and bad. So for some, it was a matter of, you know, this was what was going on at the time. They couldn't speak against it openly. I mean, we or we have discussed until the cows have came home how Washington was a slave owner. 
but he treated his slaves more humanely. They were almost like his own family, but he could not get rid of slavery as an institution. So when you look at Washington, is it fair to actually pen him in with all those other, we might say, immoral slave owners? Because, you know, good and bad are abstract terms. Historians use stronger terms, which have more relevancy to what we are discussing, which is basically moral and immoral. So, you know, you're basically subtracting from Washington's legacy, with, of which slavery is a big part because he was opposed to slavery, but he couldn't do much about it during his time. So I think he, you... he inherited the slaves he had and he couldn't free them by himself. There was some law no. or something. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't uh, free them. And he also wanted it added into the American Constitution that slavery would not be allowed on the basis of color or birth or citizenship in the United States. But obviously he couldn't get his way. But my point being, if we start making these, you know, vague general deductions overall, if we start, you know, applying them universally, we are not getting to the truth, you know, at hand, especially when, you know, all these contradictions come out. Now, 50% of the historian's task is passing a moral judgment on the institution in question. Right, we are saying slave owning, you know, owning slaves is bad, slavery is bad. To explain away these internal contradictions, though, we move on to another point, and here it is. Why did society compel the good to become slave owners as well as the bad? Sorry, if you got a little bit disconnected, can you say it again? So as a historian, 50%, and this is also for the listeners, you can write it down on a piece of paper as well, especially those who you know envision a career as a historian. 50% of the task is to pass a moral judgment on the institution, which in this case is slavery, right? Mm-hmm. The next 50% is critical because if you don't get that right, then there is no point in you being a historian in the first place. And this next 50% consists of you passing a moral judgment on the society which tolerated slavery and compel the good as well as the bad to become slave owners. And where does the boring rendition of facts come into play here? Well, here's the thing. If we are going to say that Hitler was evil, Hitler was a genocidal maniac, by default, we need to notice how was it that society gave Hitler such prominent power? Good question. Right? So that society, he was open about his views. Yep. Because, I mean, when I paraphrased Card, that's why I actually mentioned the fact that, you know, the liberator as well as the tyrant, to some degree, are a byproduct of their society. Now, one of the most enigmatic cases of, you know, the religious world today is why the Guru Granth Sahib has the Bani of 15 Pagats, you know, Pandra Pagats. And there are a lot of theories which are proposed. I mean, some say that the bugs came down from such kind of, even though Gurbani doesn't agree with such kind of being a physical place and they gave Guru Arjun their bani. Others are saying that the bugs met uh, Guru Nanak and gave them their bani. But that sort of comes to the fantastic point of view where they're, you know, misquoting Shabbats as much as the Udasis quote, uh, they misquote Satta Balvanda Divar to say that, you know, children because what Sata and Balvanda mention in their var is that the sons of Guru Nanak did not listen to him. They're explicitly talking about Shri Chand and Lakmi Das. But sons is being translated to Sikhs willfully by the Udasis to claim that you know there was no conflict between Guru Nanak and his sons. So in this way they're you know quoting oblique and vague translations or passages which you know many Sikhs are not familiar with from Gurbani sort of push their view. Similarly, this uh, bug, the Bani individuals who try explaining it, they fall into the same trap. But Professor Saheb Singh made a very uh, critical study of the Guru Granth Sahib, and his conclusion is a bit mystifying, but then if you were to follow his steps, you would wholeheartedly agree with him anyway. If you notice the Bani of Guru Nanak all the way to Guru Tegh Bhadda, right? what we call Guru Bani, Guru Adi Bani. Yeah. Do you notice the sense of hope 
that no matter what comes in their way, if the Sikhs follow this, if the Sikhs live this, they will always triumph? Uh, you asked me a very heavy question uh, and I can't answer it in a single sentence. I mean, there is that mystical awesomeness, you know, which pervades that bunny, that, you know, sense of spirituality, that, you know, spirituality must be practical, that, you know, life is a battlefield which can only be won if you're attached to life. And what more do you want to be attached to life to rather than the householder's life? You know, that's the ultimate pinnacle of being attached to life. Now, if you look at the Baghdadi bunny, it's all doom and gloom. And I suppose you can explain it this way, is that when it comes to Bhaktabani, there is a compare and contrast formula being followed by the gurus. The depravity of humanity, the decadence, the decay, all that is compared, right? There is a general concurrence between the gurus and the Bhakts down there based on their observations that mankind has gone astray. On the other hand, the Bhakts really never had any solution how to set humanity right. Yep, key difference. Key difference. And the outlook which, you know, now Guru Arjun, you know, from Guru Nanak to Guru Arjun, when the Sikh, you know, Guru Granth Sahib was the Sikh, Sikh scripture was actually envisioned. Guru Nanak knew that, you know, thousands have come before me, thousands have died. I won't be able to make much of a mark unless I criticize the past. Now, amazingly enough, the Bhagats represented a departure from the traditional Indic school of thought but in a sense, they fell back into the same trap again of renunciation, asceticism, and really just focusing on the individual. What Guru Nanak did was that Guru Nanak compared and contrasted. So the contrast was here on how to live life practically, on how to live life, you know, perfectly, on what the meaning of religion is, on what the true meaning of spirituality is. So the Sikh philosophy was basically revealed by contrasting the Guru's vision with the Bhagat's vision. So there is a general disagreement down there between both parties, but the comparison is based on the depravity of humankind. You know, what humankind is doing through fear, how low it has fallen. And it's interesting that through this unique strategy, the Gurus manifest the Sikh philosophy. You know, there is no sense of... Uh, insulting each other there's no sense of you know total opposition it's just that well this is what you guys are thinking but this is what reality is and the point i'm trying to make down here is the bugs were a product of their society their society from their bani we learned that you know many individuals in their society had grown tired of religion the whole gamut of spirituality practicality whatever it was people had become cynical and you can see the cynicism in Pakt, Ravidas, Pakt, Kabir, Pakt, Namdevs, Bani. Oh, and Pakt, Breed is particularly famous for it. And hmm. here's something you need to realize. If they were fed up of their contemporary society, their society was equally fed up of them. Right? Yeah. Okay. On the other hand, they were byproducts of their society in this way that they opposed society. So their incentive to oppose their society came from within that society itself, right? Hmm. And because of this incentive, the society rejected them because these 15 became a mirror through which society could see itself daily and that society did not like what it was viewing or observing or witnessing. The question they were asking, and they were like direct questions, the society couldn't answer. It couldn't. On the other hand, now let's forget about the bugs for a minute. All the Pujaris, all the Brahmins, all the Mullahs, you know, all the political tyrants, they too were a byproduct of that society. Now, that same society was crushed by these individuals. But that same society offered no resistance when they came to power. So what you need to consider down here is, A, can you trust society? And B, at the end of the day, if the tyrant as well as the liberator are both byproducts of 
their society, then how far does that society influence their conduct? So regarding the pugs, the pugs, well, society, you can say the malice, the rot of society inspired them to speak out against it. Whereas the weakness of society, the weakness of that very same society convinced the detractors of the pugs that that society was ripe for hijacking. So you see what I mean? Okay, so in other words, a tyrant sees the opportunity. The society yes. is, let's say, decaying, it's too too weak, there is no conviction, so he uses that weakness to his own advantage, and pugs, yes. they called it out. Well, they called it out, but then they didn't have any credible solution to prevent that. So today, the times we live in, would you agree that society is once again rotten? Oh, man. Yep, true. Rotten in all aspects. Right. So when we did the episode on the most dangerous scripture, we had a Shabada line which we quoted in there, a Pangati, from Asadivar, Guru Nanak, again. Apne hati, apne aapi kajasavari. Right? On Ang 474. Apne hati, apne Resolve your yeah. own affairs with your own hands. It's an imperative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you look at society today, and I know this will be very insulting to some people, and I mean, hey, if it is all good, maybe it will convince you to change your lives. Right? Today, we're lucky in one respect that we can sit down and study the history of the individual, look at individual choices, and see how they ended up where they are today. And getting back to that, uh, original message I had, you know, regarding the weekly reflection, how, you know, we need to study society as well and blame society as well for the immoral conduct of individuals, as well as credit it if it has retained any inspiration or influence. But let's see what the modern world has done to us. Right? And you will be surprised. Yep. You will be surprised to notice something. When I was younger, you had three medals in the school athletics. Guess which ones they were? One to three. First position, second position, third position. Third position. Today, you got medals up till 15th position. Oh, participation trophies. Participation trophies. Now, look, participation is necessary. And it should be necessary. But really... When you start sporting participation at the expense of perfection, what are you going to get? I'll give you an example. You know yep. people who start, start clapping when their child spells C-A-T cat correctly? Yep. <laughs> what are they teaching their child? <laughs> and look, here's the tough love. Us under 30-year-olds are part of a generation that got medals for, you know, being late, for participation, for 15th place. Now, you know, you must have figured out by now in life, and this goes for the listeners as well. Come on, guys, let's admit it. We have all figured out that no one gives a damn, a flying damn, because I'm not going to say what I wanted to say. No one gives a flying rat's ass about you being fourth, fifth, and certainly not winning a trophy for participation. I have a joke here, but it's too dark. So let's keep it clean. And I'll say that, uh, what's the equivalent equivalent of a participation trophy in life? What? This bill. Can you repeat it? We just had a bit of a disturbance. <laughs> ah, sorry. The equivalent of a participation trophy in life could be your utilities bill. You're participating in a society. Here's the bill. Pay for it. <laughs> here's the electric bill. Here's the school fees. You know, <clears throat> mum and dad, okay, look at mum and dad today. They're just too scared to pressure the kid. And I'm not talking about the stupid Indian type of pressure that you got to cram this, you got to cram that, you got to cram this, you got to cram that. You know, until you become the stereotypical call center worker and your life ends with getting a promotion as a manager and a bit of a bonus for your family. What I'm talking about 
is them telling you that you need to pursue perfection, whatever the cost, you need to push yourself. That's the only way you will grow and become someone great. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. If a kid really can't climb a rope at school, what happens? A mom goes to school or a dad goes to school, right? Oh, well, I'm very sorry, Brian, or no. let's give him a Punjab. Yep. Parent one or parent two, not mom and dad. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I actually hurt the woke sentiments. Anyway, they go to school. And this is what they say. I'm not going to say Brian now. I'm just going to say the name of my friend who was similar. His name was Jaskaran Deep Singh. And this is what Jaskaran was. Jaskaran was young. I mean, I knew Jaskaran when I was not even a teenager. And at that time, he was morbidly obese. He weighed over 80 kgs, right? This is one of the fattest kids you will see in your life. And if he's <laughs> listening, then I hope he's lost all that uh, weight and he's happy with his life. Anyhow, Badass couldn't climb a ladder at their school gym. He couldn't really get up six rungs. It's it's pretty easy. Mom and dad go to school. They get the school counselor over. They sit down with the principal. And you know what the excuse is why he can't climb? The ladder is too high? No. Genetically, we're big boned. Ah, yeah, of course. Backed by science and everything. You're backed by science. And can he please be accused, uh, excused, I was about to say accused, can he please be excused from physical education classes? Next thing you so, know, yep. Can somebody say we're genetically dumb, so we should be given a certificate without going to school? <laughs> Don't give them ideas, bro. Don't give them ideas. So, anyway, what happens with just current? He continues eating the paneer at the Gurdwara. He continues barfing on pakoras. They had a little outlet like a convenience store. So he kept on eating the chocolates. He kept on eating the pies. Kid grows fat and fat and fat. Here's the thing. No one in society at the time thought that this kid is morbidly obese. You know, get him to lose some weight. No, it's their child. They know what's best for the child. He's genetically big bone. You were hearing all these excuses and they actually had to move his school several times. They used the same excuse. Why the hell am I saying accused? They used the same excuse every time the excuse was accepted and he was let off, you know, physical education class. Ultimately, what happens is that, you know, they had a psychological test done on him when I still knew him. And, you know, your brain, your brain continues growing all the time. You have to learn to rewire your brain. Unfortunately, today what's happened is that our dignity, our self-respect is being killed by the society to which we want to contribute. Why this is happening is that with the technological advances we have had and all these, you know, bloody Marxist concepts such as socialism coming along, why do we have a need to do anything? That's the question we we're asking. Universal basic income. Universal basic income. So all this is coming in. We have, you know, stuff like critical race theory. We have, you know, uh, body shaming. We have all this stuff coming in, which is basically retarding, uh, you know, retarding our drive for perfection. Here's the thing. By the time he was 17, Jaskaran Deep Singh's brain lost its competitive edge. His limbic system was working fine, but the limbic system was more Beadly, so slow. Basically, if he stood in front of a bus, he would probably be hit and run over before he realized what was happening. Hmm. Have you seen the vampire movie Blade? I mean, anyone who's seen that movie, if you know Pearl, the badass vampire in there, that's basically just grand deep sink today. Uh, I know. I only know Wesley Snipes. <laughs> well. You know, what I mean is that society accepts all these excuses we have today because society itself is too scared to pursue perfection. You see society today. Now, if someone gets up on stage, someone who's, you know, 50 and they're the star, matches their shoes and says, well, this is democracy's time. We need to modernize. We need to become like society today. Well, hey, hang on, buddy. End of the day, look at the Khalsa. You know, we can use, a, we can use millions of excuses. Well, they had to fight to survive. They didn't get food. But, you know, even today, my grandfather is in his mid-90s and he gets up every morning, does 200 press-ups. I bullshit you not. 
Well, strong man he is. Strong man. And if you look at the Killer Riper games, look at how many 80-year-olds are wrestling with each other and playing Gatka and doing whatnot. Imagine those games in a century's time. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised after I'm dead that the Olympics shut down because society has accepted, you know, people who do not want to compete because they're too scared to be perfect, they can't tolerate failure, that they just had to shut the sporting committee down globally because basically what's the point of sports if you don't want to pursue perfection? Talking about sports, uh, news from yesterday. You know that swimmer, Leah Thomas? Yes, I believe so. But not personally. Well, you've heard of <laughs> him or her? What? Her. Okay. So, I saw the picture today on Reddit here. Yeah? Yes. So, first place, Leah Thomas. Second, sorry, I don't know her name. I don't know her name. To begin with, visually, the size difference. Yep. Yeah? Yes. And then you see, okay, this individual is competing as a woman. Well, man, sorry, I have to get into this. Man, I, okay. These girls who were born female, man, sorry, I have to use this, this vocabulary, sorry who born female, who identify themselves as female, they are standing in second place and third place. And this individual is standing at the first place, towering above everybody. So yep. if if Leah Thomas was, were, man, sorry, I don't know much what pronounce, was to compete with biological men, born men, identify as men, they wouldn't be in the first hundred place or something. So, can you imagine? Uh, uh, let's say this Olympic boxing or something. Yes. Female boxing, yeah? Yep. And uh, Miss Brock Lesnar walks in. Okay. Whole win. <laughs> you tell me. Have you not totally eliminated female sports? See, the amazing thing is, in Sikhi, we're emphasized, we're mandated to tell the truth, right? Yeah. And the truth today is that society is happily killing itself. I mean, look at the past, you know, look at our physical bodies. I mean, for goodness sake, we are made to run. We are made to put stress, physical and mental stress on these bodies, you know. But what they've become today, you know, now and then you get that urge to exercise or do something, that's your body telling you. If you get that urge, that's your body actually telling you that you're getting unfit. But that urge is suddenly, you know, hampered down. Look at the excuses we have. It starts from one individual, it gets accepted all around. Okay, fast food outlets today. How many fast food outlets today actually, you know, put a normal athletic person on the front of their advertisement? Uh, let me think. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Right. So two ways they work. When we had Pepsi in India, if you remember that, they used to use Sachin Tendulkar and Shahrukh Khan. So the average Indian, if we take them as an example, they knew to get to Sachin's level, they had to pursue perfection which many Indians don't have the time to because they're too busy working in shitty jobs. To get to Shahrukh's level, you had to be perfect in the arts, which again, many Indians look down on. Do you see that uh, it's almost like a hyperbolic contradiction down here? You look down on, you know, your kids becoming artists, but hey, you like art. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> see, all those athletic superstars they used to use what are what is the message they're trying to get out to you? Well, that message is that basically you need to get to their level. It, it was a pretty crucial strategy, but there was no moral incentive to get to that level because ultimately the product they're advertising and feeding you through using these individuals as a physical pictorial medium is taking you further away from the level those individuals are at. Do you understand what I mean? It's complex to understand, but uh, yeah, you're making your point correctly. Yep. 
So what happens after a while, they realize that people have caught on to the game. I mean, if I remember correctly, back in the early 2000s, Sprite actually used a basketball star and they went pretty, you know, satirical, but they also went pretty truthful with him. He's walking along and talking about getting paid by big companies for, you know, uh, promoting their drinks. And he's saying drink Sprite. And there's a little animation of him being paid money. Sprite is good for you. He gets more money. Sprite is excellent for you. He gets even more money. Well, basically, they're actually saying out there, hey, we're giving these guys money. Society was so taken with this, you know, satirical truth. Now, why did they accept the satire? Is because society was fed up of the fact that, you know, there is no truth around it. Why isn't there a truth around it? Rather than look at the root cause of the problem, which is it's allowing individuals to exploit it, it looked elsewhere. You know, maybe the politicians are lying. Maybe the doctors are lying. Maybe the celebrities are lying. Well, okay, they're lying, but why are you becoming a gullible fool? You're expecting them to take personal responsibility and not many people like it. Not many people like it. So what ultimately ended up happening is that, you know, media outlets started promoting their products with a bit of a truth in there. And, you know, the Sprite advertisement was pretty much slapping people in the face and saying, well, we know you bitches are tired of the lies, but here's one more lie mixed in with a bit of truth. Sprite sales overtook Coke for the first time in 20 years at that point. Overnight. Mm-hmm. Right? So, what happened after a while around the 2005-2010 mark in those five years, you know, when we had this massive outburst of social media, we had Facebook, we had Bebo, we had all these things like Orchid come along, you know, your phones grew advanced, uh, Apple intermixed the iPhone and the i, you know, uh, the iPod and a normal phone. When you had this massive, you know, boom of social media, they actually started utilizing love marks. Now, love marks was a theory which was actually made in the late 90s is that if you want to sell something to society, why the hell would you go out there and tell, you know, people, okay, let's imagine there's a lady with a little kid, little kid pukes up on his clothes. Well, ma'am, why don't you use our soap? These are the chemical compounds which take out all the stains. Is that going to make you feel better? Is that going to save you money? Your salesman going around knocking on doors? Or do you utilize a TV with a lady in a bikini or a guy, a hunk with that soap? Like, oh, yeah, this cleans me up really good. Which one is going to attach a love mark? Which one is going to incite uh, what we call an innate psychological emotion in society? The hunky ad. So obviously you can yeah. sell your product even though if it's shit more and more as long as you target someone's emotions, someone's feelings. So, you know, society asked all these random questions. Why are we being lied to? We have it even today. Why are we being lied to and sold crap? Well, here's the question. Why are those people lying if you aren't gullible in the first place? Okay, uh, two things here. Yep. I think it's the comedian Andrew Schultz who said this and... Uh... He actually made uh, a point about uh, fat models. Yep. I think it was he, he was on Joe Rogan. I, I saw a, like a little YouTube short clip. Yep. He said if you're a female model or let's say male model, you have to put in a lot of effort. You have to you know, go to the gym. You have to take care of your body. You have to eat right. You have, have to keep a very tight schedule and everything. Yeah. Yep. So you're at least putting in a lot of effort. Yeah. Exactly. But he said, he, well, he well, no, he used a bit of, a, 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 let's say, creative language. And he said, he, they're just fat people and fat women and just says, look at me. You're fat. <laughs> and you have accepted being fat. You don't want to improve yourself. And it's biologically, scientifically, it's true that if you're fat, you will attract a lot of, let's say, body complications or, let's say, future diseases. Yeah. Yep. But no, like you guys look at me. You're fat phobic. The, the the word fat phobic. The first day I heard it, I couldn't stop laughing. So, what do you mean fat phobic? Discrimination is bad. I understand that, but phobia is an irrational fear. Being, if you are fat, we know for a fact that it will cause you problems. So there's no phobia here. It's reality. Yeah. And amazingly and enough, seeing you're saying you're saying. But yourself, 
think those are called yeah. leggings, yeah? Or yoga pants or something. Yes. Who, who wears them? They are advertised <laughs> by, let's say, I think it's, it's primarily a female thing. Young, fit females wearing them, going to the gym or maybe going to the beach or something. I don't know. Who actually wears them? No one I know. No. What's the physique of the people who wear them? At <laughs> us. So people want to look that way. They don't see themselves the way they are, but they the way they want to look or the, what they want to be. I think that's a psychological thing. Yes. Yeah. So can you correlate these two things to the modern society? Well, it is one of the afflictions of modern society that we we don't have the encouragement or the incentive or the drive, you know, to make ourselves like what we imagine ourselves to be. Rather, we want to get everything on the easy and for free. Now, if you look at it in the Western world, you know, one thing has become pretty big on the dating scene. A man needs a dead bod, which is basically a fat middle-aged man's body, you know, with the gut, the gullet, and all that going on. Beer so the gut. thing is, your yeah, beer gut. If they want to sell their products, they're obviously going to push the line that this gut is the best thing you can possibly have. And when that becomes mainstream, there are women down there as well as men who are going to sacrifice, you know, their future to marry someone who's fat, who's basically low IQ, who's got health problems, who's a waste of time, who can't be bothered perfecting themselves or, you know, losing all that weight, they can't be bothered at all. They're lazy. They're apathetic. Why would you spend your time with such a person? But the thing is, our brains have been killed so much. Basically, it's pure pressure. Society sees, society does. And if you look at it, that is called Kusangat and Gurbani, right? All that falsity yep, which society is following is called bad Sangat. Sikhi is based on Saad Sangat. However, we do not have Saad Sangat. The principle of Saad Sangat is gone among us, but we're doing all this Kusangat. I mean, there's that bearded Sikh lady who's vaping, and people are saying, well, she's in Adamala, but that's her desire, that's her wish. And all that rubbish which they're coming up with, it's all a malice of society. And, you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing with society today doesn't understand, and it's also misleading our younger Sikhs into believing as well. There is no such thing as equality of outcome, right? No, they're pushing for it. Obviously, they're pushing for it, but you need to remember that there is a natural law here called crisis law. And what that says is the minority always leads the majority because the majority never knows what it wants. You know, the majority fights for desires rather than what is needed. Am I right? Uh, yes, I would say that uh, the people who are willing to, let's say, push their limits and go to the end, they're always a minority, a very small percentage. I'm not, I'm not saying like five in a hundred or something. No, it's like one in a thousand or something. Well, I mean, personally speaking, I would say we're talking about 25% or 24% of the total global population today has that drive. And out of that 24%, only 2% will succeed because they can preserve and prolong that drive. Uh, yeah, yeah. Multiple factors are at play here. Multiple factors, but at the end of the day, it's all about preserving that drive. You can overcome the toughest of odds. I know that people are probably saying, oh, well, it's easy for you to talk. Well, hang on. It's not easy for us to talk. It's a proven fact. Now, Gurbani actually also has a Shabbat, you know. Now, Fakir, Padshah, Murakha, Pandit now. You know, the beggar is called the emperor and the fool a wise scholar. Ateka now, Puraka, Eve Kare Gwao. The blinder made seers. This is how the masses bear witness. The instigator is made leader and the fraud on it highly. Nanak, the Gurmukhs know that in this so-called dark age, such as justice. Now, this is found on Anga 1288 of Gurbani. And what it's usually saying, what it's really saying, is that at the end of the day, the masses do not know what they need. They only know what they desire. Anyone who provides their desires or an outlet to fulfill those desires or seems like they're actually fulfilling those desires, those people always come in power. That's why the beggar is being made emperor, because the beggar knows how to sell a dream to society. Now, on that ground, 
on that note, we need to know that today the dream which is being sold is the quality of outcome, right? Uh, it's being sold under the packaging of a fair world. Fair world. We have become so PC, we are actually refusing to see what society today is refusing to see and it's also misleading the Sikhs at the same time. Sikh society cannot be what modern society today is and I'm not saying we are going to be like the Taliban. What I'm saying is that there is a fundamental conceptual difference between our principles and modern societies. Sikhs do not seek the equality of the outcome, right? What it is, this is how we Sikhs understand it. The equality of contribution leads to equality of responsibility, right? Now, life owes you nothing. Wahiguru owes you nothing. The Guru owes you nothing. You go to the Gurdwara to do Ardas. You go to the Gurdwara to clean Pande. You know, the Guru doesn't care. We probably have millions more who can come and do it selflessly. What the Guru cares about is you taking responsibility for your own life, your own decision, your own actions, your own beliefs, right? So the individuals who realize this, they decide that they want to contribute. When these individuals come together, it becomes equality of contribution. They're equally contributing to society. In time, let's not talk about money down here because you know you probably contribute more taxes than I do, but at the end of the day, time service, selflessness, anything. So equality of contribution. Now that leads to equality of responsibility. And this is where process law applies again. So from a society, we have individuals rise up. They contribute. From equality of contribution, it comes to equality of responsibility. If you're contributing, how much responsibility are you willing to take? So if we have 50 contributors, now we're only left with 40 responsible people. Do you agree? 10 have been taken off. Yep, it's all diminishing. True. Crisis law is coming into effect because basically some individuals will only want to be contributors. They do not want to ignite their drive to become responsible, even more responsible than they are. So from equality of responsibility, now everyone is equally responsible. They're doing whatever service they have been tasked with. It comes to equality of opportunity. Now, opportunity for what? Opportunity for showing leadership, right? Ten more get taken off because some people are responsible, but they're not leadership material. So what are we left with? 30, right? 20 have gone. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing. If you think at the end there's a paradise or there's a brilliant halo, there's nothing like that. Because the equality of opportunity leads to the burden of leadership. Mm, agreed. Agreed? No. Multiple thousands of Sikhs contributed to the Panth. Out of the thousands, hundreds were identified as being responsible. Out of those hundreds, tens were identified as being, you know, individuals able to grasp some opportunity out of those tents only Nwab Kapoor Singh was chosen to shoulder the burden of leadership okay I'll ask you in a, in a way that every listener can understand yep third world war wraps out the earth is going let's say it's largely destroyed and irre irreversibly changed you are put in charge of selecting let's say a thousand people to move to Mars, let's say. Yep. You're going to choose those people based on what? Well, you know what my criteria would be? Uh, tell me. Whether they believe in my Babaji or not. <laughs> Are you going to have 50% females in there? <laughs> Serious question. I know what you mean. Well, you would need to have both the genders, wouldn't you? It can't be like Noah's Ark that you have. No, 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 no. They are not two genders, they're more than two. <laughs> you see where the... I mean, we would be so damn PC at the end of the day, we would just lose our ability to reproduce in the new world. That's, that's I guarantee you, your rocket wouldn't take off. 
And when you come to, you know, the burden of leadership, after that, you become immortal. Your decisions go down in history. Again, Price's Law tends out the dreamers from, you know, all the dreamers are taken away and only the real visionaries, the realists are left behind. That is what's called Price's Law. The minority always leads the majority. Now, if you look at, you know, okay, look at the Vadaka Lukara. You had the missiles. How many missiles came out of thousands of Sikhs? How many Sardars could we have for the missiles? A very small number. A very small number. End of the day, what we have with society, our problem as Sikhs with society today is that, you know, okay, let's just consider the missiles down here. You know, Nwab Kapoor Singh is, you know, selected head of the Khalsa Dal, and from there we know that the missiles come along. And, you know, these are, this is quite an interesting system, and intriguing, but also effective system. So, you know, historians identify 11 to 12 missiles. So, okay, let's just accept 12 for the sake of an argument. Bara Misla, right? Mm-hmm. Bara Misla, Bara Sardar. Under each Sardar, you probably had maybe several hundred missile darts. Under them, you had several thousand, you know, minor missile darts, I guess, if that's the ranking system. Under them, you probably had, you know, multiple of thousands of individuals. But at the end of the day, if you, as you go to the top, ultimately, you come to Jathedar, Jasasangaluvalia. It's that singular, that singularity of leadership, because no one's saying that the others are weak or anything. It's just that who's ready to take the burden of leadership once you take this burden, it gets heavier, it never gets lighter. No, it never gets lighter. And responsibilities never get lighter. And before we sign off, I mean the the point I'm trying to make down here is you know, the path to perfection is possible, but you need to pursue it. Society today won't let you pursue the path to perfection because society itself is not perfect. I'm not saying that Sikh society will be utopian. You know, Bhakt Ravi Das says that Shabad of Begampura, but then Guru Arjan actually writes down about Halemi Raj. There is a significant difference between Begampura and Halemi Raj because at the end of the day, the Gurus decided that Begampura should be within the mind. Your mind should be paradisical. At least in your mind, you should have a Begampura because Begampura outside is impossible. But Halemi Raj starts when people start taking responsibility for their own actions and ensuring others do as well. What's stopping, if, if, if a utopia is a physical place, a real place, what's stopping others from destroying it? Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. These dreams with society has fed into us because you know we need to remember society what is society at the end of the day think about it it's you know a mass of humans who coexist together and obviously given our heightened sense of cognition we're going to have these mental psychological and even physical influences on each other society is basically one of the outcomes of that get together contract in that society what we're seeing today is a disenfranchisement of fracturing of that original contract we had against wilderness, against the elements when we were in a bestial state, suddenly on the outside, physically speaking, society is advanced, but internally, mentally speaking, we are regressing into beasts over and over and over again. And what it's coming to is that, you know, today process law applies in dual senses, it applies to wisdom, it applies to a you know wise leadership, it applies to inferior leadership. Basically, it says the minority rules over the majority or leads the majority. On the other hand, in the future, crisis law will only apply that a minority tyrannizes the majority if we keep on going the way we are. Hmm. Now that Shabbat of Guru Nanak, you know, of doing things yourself, Society discourages it. We have the householder's life in Sikhi, a householder's life fully attached. Now, society also discourages that as well. Do you see any moral responsibility among parents today? Uh, not much. Pop out a kid, walk away, have another one-night stand, inseminate another woman, pop out a kid, walk away, 
get another man to put it into you, popera kid, get wealthier. Now, I'm not speaking for everyone. You know, I know individual cases are different before the Babaji and the white crew jump onto me. But the reality is that these cases are exponentially decreasing while those other cases of misuse and abuse are, you know, rapidly increasing. Now, Sikhs live in society. We shouldn't let all that affect us. We shouldn't let all these mannerisms afflict us. We need to retain some pride. I know that the upgrades on the radios are constantly spewing out this garbage that we need to be like the society around us. Well, hey, at the end of the day, we have Sikh values as well. Our values include cultivating virtue, include, you know, living a disciplined life. You know, this is what I say to the guys who actually go overseas and marry, you know, local women just to get their citizenship. Why would you divorce them? Man, yeah, I've seen some of the such cases and it's really, really bad, man. Really bad. Are, are you any better than the Gore you criticize for their one night stand? Not just a one-night stand is, a, let's say, uh, a mutual consenting thing. In this, in, in such a scenario, just using, it's, oh, it's mostly the female, and just discarding her afterwards, including the child. Basically, what the societal culture around us is basically rotting. Society is rotting our brains. Society is open to exploitation. Society is afflicted with rot. Why are you becoming like that society? Why aren't you changing yourself so you can make society in your own image? Asking tough questions. Your reliance on others, your interdependence on others is opening you, is making you susceptible to their negative influences. Mm, a question. Are you trying to set examples for your own kids? And what are those examples? Well, the greatest yardstick here, Navjeet Singhji, for us will be that when they listen to all this in the future air words, they will judge us whether we lived up to them or not. If, let's say, a kid born, let's say, 10 years ago is looking up to his parent one or parent two, what will that kid observe? Either they will observe hypocrites or either they will observe arrogance of perfection. Can they say that my parent one spent all their time doing stupid things, maybe watching TV or making sports their entire personality and they couldn't contribute to me being a good individual? You've actually identified where the rot starts from in society. It starts from our homes. See, the next generation, do you really think that society would be self-contributing? Not only that worries me, that terrifies me. I mean, before we sign off in a minute, you have, you know, seen that poster. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. It's really a yep, cyclical revolution of society itself. But where we are standing today is we have become physically weak. We have become so used to the good times that we have also mentally forgotten these lessons from the past. Are you willing to actually put your mind to understand what exactly created those good times? The a lesson here for the listeners, good times came as a result of Guru Hargobind's battle with the Mughals, but Guru Harai never left his sword. They didn't. The good times came, came after, let's say, sacrifices, personal responsibilities and wise decisions made by our ancestors. And unfortunately, we squandered it. We squandered it. The lessons of that Sikh society are lacking in today's society. So, Benti being, do not listen to these preachers. Work towards making a Sikh society. That's all for today. Until next time. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khansa. Vaheguru Ji Ka